Well, hello. My name is Josh Walters. I'm the campus pastor here at the Mount Pleasant campus. I want to welcome you. If you're joining us online or in one of the venues or at an off-site campus, wherever in the world you happen to be, we are glad that you are along for the ride. Well, this weekend we are kicking off a new series called The Elephant in the Room. And if you've been around Seacoast for long at all, you know that this is a phrase uh, that we, we regularly use when Pastor Michael, who oversees our chapel, walks into a room of any kind. He's a large man. The chapel, you know that. Beast of a man. Doesn't quite carry elephant status, uh, but this is really a series all about him. And so we're really excited <laughs> just to see what God does. It's going to be great. Now, the elephant in the room. It is a metaphorical expression used to, to make light of a truth or a problem that's being ignored or overlooked. It would apply to a, a risk that nobody is willing to take. Have you ever had one of, these, one of these feelings, these elephants in the room in your life? Maybe it relates to a, a person at work, a guy or a girl, and his attitude or her behavior is limiting the effectiveness of the team and crippling all the potential that could be there, making your work experience just miserable. It just so happens that he or she is your boss, and so as a result, no one says anything about it. There was a laughter there, like you got a testimony for me that you know. Or maybe this is just awful. Maybe somebody's flies down, and it's a more momentary deal, and nobody's willing to help a brother out. Because you know, it's like, what are you doing looking there anyway? Come on. But seriously, somebody help a brother, okay? Or maybe in your family, this is a little more serious note, drinking problems often serve as elephants in the room. They start off slow, but a, a pattern is created. Mom or dad come home from work, and they have a couple drinks, and before long, They've gotten angry and frustrated with each other. They've taken it out on the kids, and they've totally checked out from family life. It's an obvious problem. It's impacted everybody, but no one is willing to address it. We've all experienced these elephant-in-the-room feelings at some point. It's not surprising, then, that the issues that we experience at home or at work with family or with friends or coworkers would also surface here in the church. There's issues that, when talked about here in the church, uh, when spoken of in Scripture or taught from a stage, bring about a response in us that's almost primal. You know, a lot of them are, are very culturally driven, and many of us are very opinionated by them. Issues like homosexuality or the use of alcohol or divorce or politics almost bring about a response in us that's fight or flight. These things are addressed, and we either say or think, man, I knew the church was like that. I knew that, that they thought that. Why did they teach that? Why are they like that? Or it's flight, and we think, well, this is exactly why I have a smartphone. I'm going to spend the next 35 minutes, you know, checking out Facebook, checking my email, picking up a little Angry Birds, you know? <laughs> Some of you might have had that response when you found out I was speaking today. <laughs> That's not cool, okay? <laughs> I'm watching. All right. Well, one of the primary issues, the elephant in the room, that we're going to spend the next few weeks talking about is related to money. And specifically, the theme that we're going to be looking at is generosity. Now, before we go any further, you need to know that in, over the course of the next few weeks, in looking at what God's Word has to say about money, and specifically in terms of generosity, we are not going to be making an ask of any kind. So let, let your guard down there. We're not talking about this in order to cast vision for or ask that you would fund some initiative that we want to accomplish. In fact, I think that's one of the primary reasons that any conversation related to money has become an elephant in the room in the church. Over the last 20 or 30 years, we've seen dozens of pastors and churches who, through poor accountability and temptation, have taken advantage of God's people and crippled kingdom work 
because they've made poor decisions when it's come to the use of money. As a result, well-intentioned pastors and churches that are called by God and, and purposed to advance his kingdom and be used by him to transform communities have had to tiptoe around a subject that's mentioned over 800 times in Scripture, robbing the people of God of the blessing and favor that comes from stewarding money well. Did you know that there's over 2,350 verses that speak directly to how we steward our money and possessions? There's just over 500 verses on prayer. There's just under 500 verses on faith, meaning that money is talked about more than twice as much as both of them combined. Our money matters to God, not because he needs it, but because there, there's life, there's abundant life and hands that are open and a heart that desires to steward our money well. He's called us to be a people who are set apart, a people who look different, a people who, when you look at our money, one of my favorite passages, John 10, 10 says, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. When you think about the conversations you have in your home about money, when you think about riding up the road in your car, thinking through the bills you have to pay and the budget you're sticking to, is there a spirit of oppression, of frustration, of concern, doubt, or fear there? Or is it an area that you feel abundant in life? You know, how we use money is one of the primary areas that bring about division and brokenness in marriages and homes. There is a different way. So over the course of the next few weeks, we want to talk about it. We want to expose the elephant in the room. That wherever you are on your financial journey, wherever you are on a journey of generosity, that it, would it would have with it a spirit of life, of abundant life. So I want to encourage you, over the next few weeks, there's one big idea there at the top of your outline sheet that I want to encourage you to consider, and that is this. God is a giver, not a taker. God is a giver, not a taker. Would you say that with me? God is a giver, not a taker. For some of you in hearing that, it almost kind of goes against the grain of what you believe to be true about God. For as long as you've been walking with him, a lot of the passages that, that just immediately come to mind for you are, is any, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Seek first his kingdom. Rid your heart of anger, rage, and malice. Pray without ceasing. Do not get drunk on wine. You know, there seems to be this laundry list of, of behaviors of attitudes and actions that we're supposed to act out, that we're supposed to do or not do. Some of you, in hearing that God's a giver, you say, well, how, how could that be true? How could he not be a taker? I've spent my whole life, you know, living out these behaviors or attitudes, and I understand that. But I want to invite you to see him through a different lens. The Bible tells us that, that we love because he first loved us. Consequently, we give because he gave. John 3.16, there on your outline sheet, says... For God so loved the world that he gave. If you have a pen out, I want to ask you to circle, circle that phrase there, he gave. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave. He is a giver. In fact, until we've received the gift of his son, our attempts at generosity come from a posture of performing or earning instead of receiving his love and responding to who he is, a giving God. See, the truth is that generosity is something that God wants for me, not from me. Generosity is something that God wants for me, not from me. He doesn't need my money, but there's life in him, abundant life in him. And I can't serve both God and money. 
So when I become overly concerned about the resources that he's given me, when I cling to them as my source of life, I ultimately end up robbing myself of life. God is a giver, not a taker. There's abundant life in a heart and hand that's open and desires to encounter God. So let's just look through that lens over the next few weeks. Regardless of how that rubs you, just be praying that God would begin to, to cultivate in you a heart and eyes that could see him as the giver. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. God, we thank you so much for this series. God, we're thankful uh, that you are a giver. Uh, God, not only that you gave your son that we might have abundant life in him, uh, but God, in our daily needs, that you're the giver of, of joy. God, that you provide for us financially, that you're the giver of life. And so I, uh, I pray for our eyes, God, that we would see you in a way that's life-giving. I pray for our hearts, God, that we would be open to all that you want to do in and through us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so it was my junior year of high school, and I drove a blue 89 Honda Accord hatchback. It had uh, blue seats, blue dash, blue steering wheel, gear shifter, more blue than I ever cared to see in a car again. And uh, I was out on a date night with my best friend and his girlfriend playing the third wheel there. We were driving home, and it was pouring rain. I mean, the worst rain I've ever driven in. So we're barely moving up a road. My windshield wipers are, are doing nothing here. And so I tell them, we're going to have to pull over or we're going to die, you know, because I can't see anything. And so we're, we're moving to the side of the road, and I'm trying to feel when the tires hit the grass because I literally couldn't see anything. At one point, I just stopped the car and say, we're going to have to sit here. We'll miss curfew. We'll just wait till the rain dies down. I tried to open my door up to kind of get my bearings for where the car was sitting, and the rain was, it just felt like hail, you know, hit me in the face, and I quickly jumped back in the car and closed the door. And so we're sitting there, and after a few minutes, a policeman pulls up behind us. One of the few times in my life where I was just so thankful that a policeman pulled up behind me, you know. I'm thinking, perfect, they're going to help us. Unfortunately, I'm not getting out of the car, so I don't know how this is going to work. You know, can he pull my cell phone number from my license plate somehow? You know, I've seen too many CSIs to know what cop could really do. So, so I don't know. We're, we're just going to sit here. A few minutes later, another policeman pulls up in front of us. I'm like, man, this is just awesome. They realize this is a bad storm. They're really going to help us out here. So I'm still sitting in the car wondering how this, you know, help is going to come about. And after a minute, another policeman pulls up and beside the other one. And uh, two or three minutes later, there's five of them uh, kind of surrounding our car. And, uh, and each of them have the little light attached to the outside of the car on, and they're all flashing into our windows. And so we're like, oh, my gosh, what's going on, you know? And, and so at that point, I hear, get out of the car with your hands up. It's like, oh, my gosh, you know? And so at this point, I get out of the car, pour in rain. All of the cops are behind their doors with their guns pulled. And I'm thinking, what in the world? Turn around. Follow my voice backward with your hands up. So I turn around, pour in rain feel one of the cops grab my hands. They cuff me, throw me down on the ground. My face gets scratched up. At this point, my best friend gets out of the car. Mr. Officer, Mr. Officer, my girlfriend's going to miss her curfew. You know? <laughs> I still think, as I'm laying there soaked with my face bleeding, I'm asking still for forgiveness for the words that came out of my mouth at that point. <laughs> so the cops start screaming, who's in your car? Where are you going? And uh, they run over to the car, and cops start to scramble, and they go to pull off, and my best friend stops one of them. Turns out that someone had robbed a McDonald's in a blue 89 Honda Accord hatchback, and us being awkwardly parked on the wrong side of the road, you know, made for, made for the perfect suspect there. 
In a moment, due to what had happened to me, how I was talked to and treated, I responded almost subconsciously in several different ways. I went from thankful to impressed to a little bit concerned to straight up terrified and then angry, you know, all in about five minutes. And at no point through that experience did I have to tell myself what to feel or how to think. Almost subconsciously, my body responded. You know, I was hardwired to, to respond, to have feelings and thoughts that, that kind of parallel the experiences that I was going through. By definition, a response is a mental, physical, or emotional reaction to a specific stimulus. Okay, so to illustrate this, I want us to play a little game, but it's going to involve some crowd participation. Now, for some of you, in hearing the phrase crowd participation, you started sweating a little bit, uh, which is also a response, but it's not part of our game. Okay, so, so here's what we're going to do. You're going to hear a sound, and I need you to speak out to me. Tell me, that's, that means you talk, okay? Tell me the thoughts that come to mind or the feelings that you have when you hear this. Okay, here we go. All right, let me hear it. Fear, panic, comfort. The younger folks in the crowd responded, they feel like they're being chased. It's, it's terror, you know? Your driving record is an elephant in the room for another message that we will speak to, okay? We do have a continuum there. Some people are, do have comfort. Uh, they're encouraged. You know, they hear those sirens and they look around and thinking, oh, something's happening around me. They don't think, what have I done wrong, you know? Some people drive up the road and the response is like, oh, you bozo, why didn't I stop? Why was I going so fast? Jeez, I gotta slow down. Okay, now imagine this one. You hear the same response, you hear the same noise, you look in the rearview mirror, you see the blue lights, you go to slow down and pull over, but then he passes you to get the guy in front of you. Okay, what's the response then? Exactly, it's like, oh man, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's like totally different response. Either way, you don't have to manufacture it. It just, it comes about. Extreme anxiety, extreme relief. Like, oh, thankful. Well, similarly, generosity is a response. Generosity is a response. In the book of Acts, one of the primary ways that we know the early church had experienced God, one of the primary ways that we know they had encountered him was because of their generosity. Acts 2 tells us they had devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. They were filled with the Spirit of God, filled with the Spirit of awe, and had seen Him do incredible things all around them. Well, in verse 45, it says, Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as He had need. We see again in chapter 4, verse 34, it says, There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put them at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. So these were people who had experienced God. They had experienced the generosity of the gift of his son. And their response, that they didn't have to be told how to manufacture or what to do, was of generosity. There was no one around them who had need. The early church had encountered God. His life, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection, and their response was of radical generosity. Today I want us to look at the story of two men. And as we look at these stories, I want you to put yourself in their shoes, to walk a while on the road with them, read their stories, and think, now how would I have responded in this situa situation? They were given the opportunity to be made whole, to be made complete through this encounter with Jesus. They received instruction, yet because of their responses, 
their lives went in totally different directions. First story is found in Matthew chapter 19. It is about a rich young ruler. Read along with me there on your outline sheets. It says this. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter eternal life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, all these I have kept since I was a young man, he said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, that word perfect there also means complete. If you want to be perfect, if you want to be complete, go, sell your possessions to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he walked away sad because he had great wealth. Okay, so he's a young guy, a rich young ruler. He was given access to Jesus, could have some conversation about the, the emptiness that he was feeling. He received some instruction, was told Literally, if you want to be complete, go and do this. Yet he walked away sad. Okay, so to help you get, get a visual here of a man encountering Jesus and walked away sad, I had a few campus pastors take pictures of a sad face. I said, let me just see a sad, a sad face. So we have James Island, Asheville, and Greenville here. I'm thinking Greenville, that's just pitiful. That's just so sad. You know, everybody say, don't be that guy. Don't be that guy, Okay. He walked away sad. His money, his possessions had a grip on him. So after encountering Jesus, receiving instructions, he had to walk away. He couldn't do it. Walked away sad. The second story that I want us to look at comes from Luke 19. It's about a man named Zacchaeus. There on your outline sheets, this is what it says. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed the sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus! I love that, because I think about it. How did he know his name? It's like, did he ask around, or did he just know? Can you imagine climbing a tree and Jesus calling out to you? Josh! I'm like, oh. <laughs> anyway, all right. Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, Man, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. So here we have a little more well-known man, probably a little more established. He was wealthy, but he was disliked in the community from mistreating others, from stealing from them, from doing them wrong. He was a wealthy man because of the way he had taken advantage of others. He has this encounter with Jesus, and his natural response is one of generosity. And as a result, his life is forever changed. Okay, so to help you grab this, same campus pastors, happy faces. Let's see him. There we go. Asheville, you are blessed to have such a jolly, jolly face in the mix. Okay, so he experienced joy. He experienced abundant life in a moment because he encountered Jesus and a clenched fist was opened. 
He said, Lord, look, here today I give half of everything I own to the poor. Generosity was his natural response. As we compare the stories of these two men, we can see that generosity is a response that, number one, there on your outline sheets, exposes the posture of my heart. Exposes the posture of my heart. Our ability or inability to give generously is a good indicator of the condition of our hearts. Jesus said it this way, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Meaning where you go to find comfort or, or peace or joy, where you go to find value or worth, what you attach your heart to, there your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The rich young ruler had an encounter with Jesus, and though his mouth was open, his heart was not. He had a lot of words, he had a lot of, a lot of thoughts, a lot of ideas, but when Jesus spoke to his heart, telling him what he needed to do to be complete, telling him what he needed to do to experience abundant life. He walked away sad because he was, though he was close to Jesus personally, his heart was far from him. And as a result, he walked away. Zacchaeus, on the other hand, coming down from the tree, encounters God and responds by giving of his possessions generously to the poor. The posture of their hearts is revealed in their responses. It's interesting to me that Jesus never says anything to Zacchaeus about his money. He never says anything about the people that he had cheated. He never mentions the poverty that those around him were living in. Jesus called him from a tree and said that he wanted to spend time with him. And as a result, Zacchaeus encounters him, a living God, in the context of a relationship, and in a moment discovers where joy and worth and life really come from. After seeing how each of these men responded and looking back over their story, it's kind of easy to identify the posture of their hearts primarily just because of the nature of the questions that they asked. The rich young ruler goes to Jesus and he says, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? The posture of his question wasn't to figure out, what do I, what do I get to do for you? What can I do for you? He was trying to figure out the minimum amount that I have to do for you. I see this, this most often in premarital counseling. You know, couples are engaged. They've drawn a line in the sand. They got a date. They want to be physically pure. Uh, but the question is, how far is too far? You know, we want to honor God, but oh man, this is so hard. And so in premarital counseling, we give couples a premarital packet. It's got all the information about the church and, and uh, things they need to know about a ceremony. And one of the items in that packet is a purity covenant. So we'll talk through the difference in coming to see a pastor versus going to say a justice of the peace is that you want God's favor and blessing on your marriage. And, and if that's the case, then you have to approach the covenant and the way that God designed it. He owns the copyright on marriage. We can't say, I want his blessing, but I'm going to approach this thing my way. And so we talk through the purity covenant, and I asked the couple, so are you being physically pure? And uh, they looked at each other, and then they looked at me, and they kind of adjusted themselves in their seats. And about the same time, the, uh, the, the guy said, yeah, we're, we're doing good. And the girl said, we're not pure. You know? <laughs> and so, so we, we talked through what that looked like and uh, kind of made a plan and we were going to leave that session and the guy asked me if he could post-date the purity covenant. <laughs> and so we both laughed about it. He ended up signing it and turning it in. But, but it reminds me that the nature of our questions are a good indicator of the posture of our heart. Our readiness or refusal to respond in generosity reveals the condition of our hearts. If you were to put yourselves in these two stories, how would you have responded? If Jesus were to speak to your heart and tell you exactly what you needed to do to be complete, 
Would he be the object of your affection? Would your eyes be, eyes be so focused on him and his words and, and your desire to receive abundant life that you could walk away and respond in obedience to whatever it is that he called you to? Or would you walk away sad? Because there's things in this world that have gripped your heart that you find great delight and joy in. It encourages me to see that Jesus loved both men. One man whose heart was far from him and one man who would respond by going all in. To both of them, the invitation was to come and follow him. For both of them, the invitation was to relationship. While there's no question these stories can be mirrored to challenge us to consider or evaluate our objects of affection, they can also be used to, number two there on your outline sheets, reveal the size of my God. Reveal the size of my God. See, even though both of these men realized that something was wrong, both of these men realized that something was missing, that there was a problem, only one of them was willing to acknowledge that it was him. In fact, you can see this in the way that they address Jesus. The rich young ruler refers to him as a teacher, while Zacchaeus refers to him as Lord. One is willing to come to him and ask him for instruction, would you speak into my life? While the other is willing to put his life under the authority of Jesus. There's many different names or titles for God in the Bible, each of which are used to describe some aspect of his, his title or his character. Several times in the New Testament, we see Jesus referring to God as Abba. That word is literally constructed of the, the syllables a baby would use in saying their first words like dada or papa. So one of the reasons that we refer to God as Father is because of how intimately we see Jesus refer to him as Father in the New Testament. Another name from God comes from Genesis 22. There's, there's a bunch of different names and titles, but in Genesis 22, Abraham had walked up a mountain. God had told him he wanted to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. So in obedience, he walks up the, the mountain with his son, his son saying, Dad, where's the lamb you know, for the sacrifice? What are we going to do? And all the while on this journey, Abraham's saying, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. They get to the top of the mountain. He lays his son on the altar. He goes to raise a knife. And at that point, he sees a ram in the thicket. And at that point, um, Abraham says that God is Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. Another name from God comes from Exodus 15, when the Israelites have fled from Egypt. God comes to Moses. They've crossed the Red Sea. And he says, if you will focus on me, if you'll keep your way pure, if you'll hold on to my words, I will not bring about the diseases on you and the Israelites that I have brought about on the Egyptians. For I am Jehovah Rapha, which means the Lord who heals you. He is our counselor, our comforter, our friend. He is our peace and our salvation. There are so many names for God in Scripture. But of all of them, there's one title in particular that communicates his seat over and above all. Lord is the literal translation of Adonai, which means master or ruler. There are several passages that make a connection between him being Lord and our actual salvation, us receiving eternal life. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. So what about you? When you pray, when you think about God, are you talking to him as father? Are you talking to him as teacher? Uh, or do you come to him as Lord? See, there's no question throughout Scripture that he is each of those. But how we posture ourselves, how we address each of those titles or, or positions is very different. 
We come to a father for, for comfort or direction or encouragement. We come to a friend for company or, or counsel. But we come to him as Lord to put ourselves under his feet and say, Master, what would you have me do here? How would you like me to respond? I think for a long time in my faith journey, um, I thought I was a follower. I thought I was coming to him as Lord. But in reality, uh, he was more of a friend, more of a father. I would check in on his Facebook page from time to time and like some of his posts. I would want him to speak into my life, see if he had any instruction for me on how I could modify my behavior a little more to, to experience a little more life. But if I'm honest, it wasn't until my junior year of high school that I really made him Lord, that I, I placed myself under the authority of his word. It wasn't something that was beside me. It wasn't something that I was standing on, but I was willing to say, okay, God, what would you have me do with my life? I want to acknowledge you as Lord, surrender myself fully to you. When Jesus is Lord of your life, when he's master, modeling generosity becomes much easier because you acknowledge that he is your provider. The mortgage that you just paid, you know that it's not a result of a paycheck you earn, but it's because God is your provider. The pantry that's stocked, the refrigerator that's stocked, you know isn't due to a grocery store run. It's because God is your provider. When he becomes Lord of your life, when he is almighty, all-powerful God, the resources that were huge to you, that were critical to your survival, are now seen in a new perspective, in a new light. When Zacchaeus responded, look, Lord, and gave generously of all he owned, he was communicating that I see and receive who you are. That's why Jesus responded, today salvation has come to this house. When we see Jesus for who he is and our resources for what they are, we can respond and give of them more freely. So lastly, generosity is a response that number three, there on your outline sheets, changes the outcome of my story. Changes the outcome of my story. When we're willing to respond generously, our stories change. Primarily because it gives people a, a story to tell. It gives them a testimony. Uh, this year at my birthday, it was April 24th, for those of you who want to get that in your day planner for next year. Um, I was working at a house. Katie and I bought a, a house that needs a crazy amount of renovating, and so I was working over there at the house, and um, two guys were with me, and one by one, a couple other guys came in over about a 20-minute period, and each of them were saying the same thing, and they said, hey, I heard you needed a hand. I was thinking, praise God, do I ever. Man, thank you for coming. I gave them a hammer, put them on jobs. All of a sudden, me and a couple guys has turned into five or six guys. We're getting a lot done. Over about the next 30 minutes, five, 10, 15, 25 guys, the house is filling up. Each of them coming saying, hey, I heard you need a hand. I was like, man, I don't even have this many tools. This is awesome, you know? So we get to work. At one point, I walked through the house into the living room, and the guys had kind of circled up, and uh, they had a cake for me on a piece of sheetrock that we had ripped off the wall. You know, just typical guy, man platter here. And uh, they had a card for me, and they said, hey, here, here's a card. And I'm thinking, like, this is just awesome, a uh, renovating party. You know, who does that? And so they were like, Op open the card. And so I opened the card. Each of them had signed it. But it says, nothing says happy birthday like cake, drinks, and a new deck. It's like, a new deck? What are you talking about? And they said, you're about to have an Oprah moment. I'm thinking like, an Oprah moment? Wow. <laughs> what is that? You know, so I followed them outside, and they had sent someone to the house to, to take measurements of my deck. Each of the guys had pitched in, and they, they bought me a new deck for the house and filled up the back of a truck with all the screws and boards and rails, everything that we would need 
for this project. So in the middle of the night, our street is lined with trucks and uh, we're carrying in lumber. Neighbors wondering, what in the world is going on outside, you know? It gave me a story to tell. A few days later, one of the guys who was there that night was over helping me, and uh, he said, man, I've had the opportunity to live in some big cities, attended a lot of great churches, uh, but never once have I seen a community of guys come together to give generously, uh, just to love on a brother. That was just awesome to be a part of. Generosity changes the outcome of our stories. It gives us a testimony. Man, I, I ended that night so grateful for each of those guys and the blessing of a new deck, but, but who do you think really came away more blessed that evening? No question those guys did. It's interesting to me that the only passage in all of the New Testament that's quoted as Jesus having said that's not found anywhere in the Gospels of things that Jesus actually said is Paul quoting Jesus saying it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Generosity produces life in us. It cultivates in us a spirit of, of joy that couldn't be manufactured. That's much different than happiness because it's a work that God does in us. As I think about the reputation of these two men, what kind of stories do you think people told uh, as a result of their responses? I don't know that when the rich young ruler walked away that, that anybody was out in the streets talking about him walking away from Jesus. I don't know if when he got home that night at the dinner table, it was a story that he wanted to tell his wife or his kids about. I had this encounter with the Lord today. I walked away sad. You know, it's like, it's just not a story. It's not a testimony worth telling. But imagine the story of Zacchaeus. He says, here and now, Lord, I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I've robbed or cheated anybody from anything, I'll give back four times the amount. He leaves this encounter with Jesus and just starts running to the house, getting up blankets, getting up furniture, giving stuff to people. He starts walking on the road, knocking on doors. Can you imagine this? Jack and Jill are in the house, and uh, they're walking up the hill to fetch a pail of water. And, <laughs> I'm just kidding. So Jack and Jill are inside. There's this knock on the door. Jack looks out the window, and he says, oh, babe, it's Zacchaeus. Hide the silver. You know the drill. Here it goes. So she opens the door, and Zacchaeus says, listen, Jack, Jill, I want to apologize. I've wronged you in the past. I've stolen from you. I've mistreated you. But today I encountered this man, Jesus, and, and I saw the error of my ways. Would you, would you please forgive me? I want to pay you back four times what I've taken from you. He hands them this wad of cash. You know, their mouths are open. You know, they close the door. The husband peeks out the window thinking, there's a catch. You know, don't go anywhere with that money. Something's about to happen. Only to see Zacchaeus walk over to the neighbor's house, knock on their door to tell them the same thing. People can debate with you all day about the truth of Scripture. They can argue with you about Jesus being God's son or the virgin birth, him dying on the cross for your sins. You can get in theological discussions about beliefs and never feel settled. But people can't argue with a changed life. When they see a man, when they see a woman who has encountered God and a page has been turned, to see them become a new person, the old is gone and the new has come, it gives them a testimony of a God who's real who's powerful, who can transform the lives of men and forever change them. See, for some of us, generosity is a response that, like other things, happens immediately when we come into a relationship with God. We encounter Him, and in a moment, there's, there's attitudes that are changed. It's almost like a veil is lifted, and we see things differently. There's behaviors, uh, maybe a, a way that you dress, a way that you talk, things that just changed instantly. And for some of us, generosity is the same way. 
We encounter a living God, and in a moment, clenched fists that cling to the things of this world are made open. And because we've freely received the gift of His Son, because we've experienced the love that He lavishes on us, we, we want to freely give. We acknowledge Him as our provider, and immediately we want to we share the many good things that He's given us. But for some of us, generosity is much more of a journey. We come into a relationship with Him and learning how to give generously, learning how to be a people who give of what He's given is just a process. But for all of us, learning to grow in that, the only way to, to take steps forward on that process is to do just that, to take steps forward, to respond in obedience, to take advantage of opportunities to give generously when they're presented to us. So what about you? If your wife or your best friend or your children were to sit down and, and tell your story, would it resemble that of the rich young ruler? Would it sound a little more like a man or a woman who maybe through church attendance or Bible knowledge had some proximity to God? They knew some things about Jesus. They went to church. They tried to live according to the law or a way that honored God. But at the end of the day, they just kind of seemed to walk away sad. I wouldn't describe their, their faith journey. I wouldn't describe their journey of generosity as one that was really attractive or full of life. Or would your story be described as that of Zacchaeus, who, whether it happened immediately or, or whether it was a process, encountered Jesus, and man, their days were spent just learning how to live and be and look more like him. I mean, they didn't have it all together, but they, they walked in obedience. They tried to take advantage of opportunities to honor him and please him with their life. I just, it, it excites me. I can't imagine what it would look like if we as a church were to carry that spirit. Not, not a spirit of perfection to decide, hey, we're gonna do this, but a spirit of progress to say, man, this is an area that we want to grow in. When I think about Acts 2, the early church, they were a people who were marked by the generosity of God. They encountered him, and as a result, their hands were open, their hearts were open, and there was no one in their community with need. If we're gonna be a people who are set apart, a people who are called to look different, can't imagine a community far from God, people who don't know him, looking at the way that we love one another, looking at the way that we serve one another. They would be able to take note that we're different, that there's something in us, a work that God is doing in us that's attractive. It would lead them to asking questions, and all of us would have a story to tell, pointing them to a powerful God who loves them and has given generously to them. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you are a giver and not a taker. Lord, we acknowledge that there is, a, there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to death. God, that your ways are not our ways. And God, we, uh, we just speak to the elephant in the room of, of money. God, it is an area of our lives that culture has tried to uh, have us close our fists, clench our fists, hold it close to our hearts, and, and say that it is scarce. When God, today, we acknowledge that your word says you own the cattle on a thousand hills, that as Lord Almighty, as Creator God, all the earth is yours. God, I pray that you would give us a vision today of you as a giver who loves lavishly, speaking to each of us today, calling us into a relationship with you. God, would you give us the heart of Zacchaeus? God, stir our hearts to just, just catch a glimpse of you, that we might see you for who you are, and that we would respond accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen.